Welcome to Sane Split, a podcast about staying sane when relationships end. I am AJ Jakubowska, family law lawyer and mediator. Just like you, I'm human. I understand what can happen when people separate. Lots of questions swirling around like confetti. Lots of uncertainty, perhaps anger, disappointment, or even pain. Sleepless nights, shallow breathing. Will I ever be happy again? Will the kids be okay? How much is all this going to cost? All of these questions are human and you're not alone. This podcast features my thoughts about separation and my interviews with other humans who help people when their relationships end. People who assist with legal issues, who mediate, who look after hearts and minds, and even after the pocketbook. People who might help you plan your future. What you will hear is not legal advice. These are dialogues primarily about the human aspect of separation. We will try to stay away from legal lingo. It's humans talking to humans. I hope that something you hear will help you navigate your way to a sane split. Welcome and thanks for tuning in. As you might have noticed, this episode is entitled About Kids' Clauses. That's because today I'm going to talk about topics, themes, issues related to kids, which typically make their way into a parenting plan, for example, a separation agreement, or a court order. My focus will be on non-financial kids' issues. Perhaps you and the other parent are discussing your kids now that you're separated. Are you two working directly on the terms of a possible parenting plan? Perhaps you are about to meet with your lawyer to discuss such terms and you're preparing yourself for that meeting and putting together a list of issues you may want to address and ask questions about. This episode may be useful to you. I am hoping it will be. I'm not giving legal advice here and you should not consider this discussion as definitive all-inclusive, or covering every possible topic related to kids. This episode would be unreasonably long if we did that, and that's not my aim here in any event. What I would like to accomplish here is the following. I would like to make separated parents aware that there are many important issues they might and should consider when turning their minds to child-related arrangements after the separation. They may simply not have thought about some of these issues, or they may not know that they are legally important and impactful on their children's futures. So the takeaway is inform yourself, do research, investigate, get legal advice. There is another important reason why it's impossible to present a one-size-fits-all discussion of parenting plan clauses or potential terms for a court order. That reason? No two families are alike. No two kids are alike. Family dynamics, experiences, human temperaments vary. 
Children's needs evolve as they grow and develop. Parents change jobs, repartner, and so on. All these variables will hopefully be taken into account in a parenting plan for each unique family to the extent that is possible. So my discussion is about themes and general topics you might consider. It's not a prescription for a perfect one-stop shop complete parenting plan. I want to make a general comment, which has been my North Star in cases involving kids in my 25 years of legal practice and in my work as a mediator. When separated parents make arrangements about their children, or when such arrangements are made for them by the court, those arrangements are not for them, the parents. Arrangements between parents about where the children will live, for example, or who will make decisions which affect them, are truly not about the parents' wants or needs. They are really about the children and what is best for them. All such arrangements must be made in a child-focused way, not with a focus on the parents. This applies when parents make these arrangements with one another, and it is definitely the approach the family court uses when faced with having to make a decision about issues like access, residence, decision-making, any child-related issue, in fact. This principle is easy to forget, and particularly when parents are in conflict, they may unconsciously or perhaps even consciously engage in a battle with the other parent using the children as pawns. The war is actually between the parents. The kids are being used as weapons. Sometimes a parent's overriding goal is to beat the other parent in this war or battle. And the positions taken are designed to inflict a wound on the other parent. Sometimes without any consideration to whether what is being proposed actually makes sense for the child. In that context, language like my time and my children is unfortunately used. Parents begin fighting about how much time the kids are in their care, not actually because that time is what is best for the kids, their growth and development, but because it's more time than the other parent has. Even if that means just one or two hours more a week. Parents should do everything they can, and I mean absolutely everything, to maximize opportunities for agreement about the children's issues and to minimize conflict between them. Conflict between parents is toxic for kids. If the parents are unable to communicate effectively about their kids and to come up with arrangements which are best for those kids, arrangements which are child-focused as opposed to parent-focused, there is lots of help out there, many options for them to engage in a more productive dialogue on these issues with a mediator or a counselor or a therapist, for example. 
And before, before they're left with no choice but to have a family court judge, a stranger to the family, make these decisions for them. If you are a separated or divorced parent and you're having difficulty working through a child-related issue with the other parent, I urge you very strongly and very sincerely to consider involving a professional in those discussions. Someone who can help you work through those communication jams because there's a lot at stake and that's your children's future, well-being, growth and development into healthy, happy, self-aware and productive members of our society. Let's talk about some of the classic terms of a parenting plan. But first, what is a parenting plan? It's an agreement in writing between parents. It can be short or long, depending on the circumstances of the case, the level of conflict between the parents, and the unique characteristics and needs of the kids and the family. Because you still are a family, even after the separation. For kids, the concept of family does not end when their parents separate. It may change, but you're still a family. A classic parenting plan sets out terms for your parenting after the separation. Parenting plans do not usually include financial terms like child support. They can be a freestanding document, or they can either be attached to or incorporated into a separation agreement. Whether you need a parenting plan is a decision you should be making with your lawyer, or at least in consultation with a lawyer, because not every case needs one. In my family law cases involving children, I often encourage my clients to enter into a parenting plan, because from my perspective, providing parents with a roadmap for their future interaction with one another in their children's best interests reduces the possibility of conflict down the road. If you turn your mind to issues ahead of time and address them in advance in a proactive way, dealing with them down the road will be more straightforward because you have a roadmap already. So some classic terms of a parenting plan come to mind immediately. These include where the children will live, with whom, who will make decisions about them and how, how much time they will spend with each parent. Different jurisdictions have different legal terms to describe these various issues. In Ontario, in Canada, in fact, this terminology is about to change and be replaced with new terms in March of 2021, when the amended Divorce Act comes into force. Provincial legislation, meaning province-by-province laws dealing with children's issues, will also be amended, and some of them have already been amended. I'm using the old terminology here because that is what is most familiar to the public. But remember, please, that when you are negotiating these terms either directly with the other parent or with the assistance of a lawyer, you should take into consideration the fact that new terms will apply to describe these topics. 
So let's consider what you should be turning your mind to when you're talking about post-separation arrangements for your children. Who will make major decisions in their lives going forward? And when I say in their lives, I mean, generally speaking, until they reach the age of majority. Who will be making those decisions? Will you be making them together with the other parent? Will one of you make those decisions alone, but in consultation with the other parent? There are various options here, and they have legal implications. So again, you should do your research or consult with a lawyer to determine what is best for your children, not for you or for the other parent. This major decision-making is what we mean by custody. When I say major decisions, I don't mean what they will have for dinner when they're in your care or which outfit they put on to go to a birthday party. Major decisions include, for example, the choice of school or whether a child should receive tutoring, special medication, therapy or counseling, or whether they're to be enrolled in a new extracurricular activity which involves the participation of both parents. Religious identification and practice is another example of a major decision. If your parenting plan is to provide for joint custody, in other words, an arrangement in which you and the other parent make decisions, major decisions together, you should consider what is to happen if you cannot agree. Most parenting plans include what might be called a dispute resolution clause. And this is essentially a prescription for what is to happen in the event of a dispute. For example, if you disagree on an issue, will you be going to mediation? If so, for how long and who will pay for it? If the mediation is unsuccessful, will you arbitrate the dispute, meaning have a private individual make that decision for you? Or will one of you be in a position to to go straight to court to request a family court judge's decision on the dispute as soon as it's determined that the mediation has not been successful? Again, there are lots of options here and a lot of choice for arrangements which are best suited to your case. Before I leave this subtopic, I want to say that Dispute resolution clauses are not reserved for parenting plans which involve joint custody alone. Even in situations when one parent makes the major decisions, there may be a clause which provides the other parent with a set of steps to take in the event they disagree with a decision about to be made. Dispute resolution clauses may also deal with non-custodial issues. For example, changes in schedule, conflicts over access, in fact, any issues covered in the parenting plan. In high-conflict cases, disagreement is common and frequent. And a wise parenting plan should not leave warring parents to their own devices, essentially send them off into the sunset to deal with any disputes down their road without a plan. We, family law lawyers and mediators, always hope that once a parenting plan is negotiated and signed, some of the tension will ease 
and with the roadmap in place, the parents will learn to communicate more effectively, that there won't be as many snags over time. But that is not always the case, and sometimes conflict continues. In such situations, one might, might consider involving a parenting coordinator with the family to help in the implementation of the parenting plan and to possibly resolve disputes along the way. If you are interested in the topic of parenting coordination, I discuss it with Elena Tamari in an episode earlier in the season, and I encourage you to listen to that interview because Elena provides a lot of valuable information about parenting coordination, and her website is also very helpful on the topic. One area you will definitely need to address, and one about which I receive many, many questions, are children's residential arrangements, access, or parenting time. Various terms are used here. What we are talking about, essentially, is how much time each parent has the children in their care. A segment of the public believes that there is a presumption that after the separation, children will reside with each of their parents half-time. That is not actually the case. Family court judges certainly work based on the principle that children should spend as much time as possible with each of their parents. But that principle must be read in conjunction with the overriding responsibility family court judges have. And that is to order parenting arrangements which are in the children's best interests. That should be the starting point for any discussion you have with the other parent. What is in your children's best interests? The question is not what do I want or what does the other parent want. Rather, what is best for the kids given the current circumstances, the children's age and stage of development, their emotional, psychological, and physical needs, and the ability of each parent to meet those needs. When I initially meet with parents, I'm often asked, what is the standard time for a mom or dad? There really is no such thing. I may be able to answer the question more specifically, but still in fairly generic and general terms, if I'm provided with more information about the child, including their age and temperament. By way of example, my answer to that question would be different for a seven-month-old and an 11-year-old. Children go through stages of development from birth until they are 18. They have different physical emotional and psychological capacity and needs in these different stages. And these in turn impact on decisions about parenting arrangements. They have varying capacity to communicate, to reason, to understand. By way of example, an average seven-month-old will likely have considerable difficulty adjusting to alternating weeks in his or her parents' homes. By comparison, a 10-year-old will have a much easier time with that concept. So when you're sitting across from the other parent, 
talking about parenting time arrangements, it's not simply a question of making a list of various available permutations, which may, for example, include, and I'm going to use some of the common descriptions some of you may have heard already, 232232 or expanded weekend and midweek or 5522. Lots of parents begin their discussions with the idea that the kids will reside with each of them on a week-about basis because these arrangements sound fair to the parents or at least to one of them and also make sense given their work schedules. But the reality is that this arrangement may not be best for the particular child given their stage of development. Another issue to consider, and I've touched on this already, is the parent's availability and their work schedule, for example. Shift work may complicate the choice of residential or even access arrangements, not make them impossible, just uniquely challenging. So can leaving for work really, really early in the morning and being unable to make arrangements for the child's care before school or daycare starts. On the other hand, that parent may be available earlier than the other to pick up the children from school. So that should be taken into account as well. Again, there are many options here which can address both the child's needs and also the parents wish to spend as much time with the child as possible. So I encourage you to do research and speak to your lawyer or a lawyer for consultation to find out what may be best in your situation. It will also be important for you to turn your mind to the turnovers. In other words, where they will take place, who will be the dropping off or picking up parent and so on. In conflict situations, it may be best to have the turnovers take place at a neutral location, like the school, the daycare, or the dance studio. Preschoolers tend to handle turnovers better with the help of transitional objects, like a favorite toy or a blanket. When parenting arrangements are initially being designed, it's important to consider the caregiving arrangements up to that point, and they should serve as a departure point. But That does not mean that the parent who hasn't traditionally been as involved in the childcare as the other parent cannot step up to that role over time and pick up skills the other parent may already have. In such a situation, you might consider a step-up arrangement where an access or parenting schedule is put in place for a period of time and then gradually increased so that the children have an opportunity to get used to the arrangements as they change, but also importantly, so so do the parents. What I've talked about so far is generally referred to as the regular residential schedule. In other words, a typical week during the school year, for example. But we all know that our lives involve holidays, special days and special occasions, and the situation is no different for non-intact families. 
A typical parenting plan will have a separate section for the regular schedule and another one for such special days. And there are different names uh, used for this section. So here I'm talking about long weekends, summer holidays, March break, Christmas holidays, which are really made up of two sets of considerations. The first being the fact that Christmas holidays include a two-week break from school, but also an actual holiday in the middle of them, being Christmas. Other religious holidays would be considered here. I'm also talking about Mother's Day and Father's Day and what is to happen with the children's birthdays and who will have PA days that, for example, follow or precede a specific parent's weekend. Summer holidays are a classic example here. Will each parent have two weeks of time with the kids? Will these be consecutive? Who gets to choose their weeks first in a given year? Will the regular schedule apply otherwise? Or what happens if an unforeseen occasion presents itself, like a family reunion, for example, and it falls on the other parent's time? All these issues can and should be discussed in a solid parenting plan so that, again, there is a roadmap for dealing with these in advance. As you might have guessed already, there are lots of ways of dealing with such special days and holidays. Some parents alternate them or they deal with them on an odd year, even year basis. At Christmas time, they might consider splitting the holidays, the school holidays, so that each parent spends a week with the children. But the Christmas holiday itself being Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, and Boxing Day might be split into two periods and alternated between the parents. Again, lots of options. At the risk of repeating myself, keep in mind the child's age and stage of development. This is key to consider because a one-year-old's perception of Christmas is very different than a 10-year-old's. And if parents fight hard on the issue of Christmas, for example, the child is more likely to remember the conflict than actually enjoy this magical time. Another clause you may consider in your parenting plan, and likely should, is telephone, email, and other types of contact between the children and the parent in whose care they're not at a particular time. Children should be given the opportunity to contact the other parent whenever they wish. But the parent who does not have them in his or her care should also have a reasonable chance to interact with the kids, again, on a reasonable basis, and as long as such contact doesn't interfere with the children's routine or bedtime, for example. Many parents opt for a brief telephone call each evening before bedtime, but there are lots of other options available. Keep the child's age in mind. Insisting that a 16-year-old speak to a parent every night at the appointed hour is likely a pipe dream because 16-year-olds are definitely 
focused on things other than speaking to their parents based on some prescribed schedule. Now I'm going to spend some time on less obvious clauses. Social media. Should each parent be free to post on their social media accounts photographs of the kids in just about any context? Sometimes parents don't agree on this issue. And if that's the case, they should turn their minds to this ahead of time. Their joint agreement can be set out in a specific clause in the parenting plan. Depending on the age of the children themselves... Those kids may have social media accounts of their own, and it would be helpful if the parents were on the same front about the kids' use of social media, what they post, and how they interact with others on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, for example. The right of first refusal, or what is also called assuring priority of parental care, is another topic about which I receive a lot of questions. And I actually have a blog post which has received a lot of views. What is this about? Imagine a situation where a parent who has the children in his or her care at a given time is unable to look after them for, let's say, five hours and needs to find an alternate caregiver. Should that parent's first choice of caregiver be the other parent or should the parent who has care of the children be free to make arrangements with a babysitter or a family member for example in other words should the other parent be given priority as a caregiver over anyone else there are no hard and fast rules on this and the answer will also depend on how much time we're talking about. If it's a matter of two hours, it may simply make sense for the parent with care to arrange for a babysitter. But if we're talking about an overnight absence, some would argue the children should be with the other parent rather than at a friend's house for a sleepover. Many parenting plans say that the other parent will at least be given an opportunity to care for the children once some kind of time threshold is hit. So the parenting plan clause may say that the parent in whose care the children are at a given time, if that parent is unable to care for the children for a period of more than X hours, the other parent will be notified. If that other parent is unable to step in, alternate arrangements can then be made. Here's another issue many parents don't think about in advance. And in family law, we call it mobility. What happens if the parents have a shared residential arrangement, meaning that the children live with each of them roughly half of the time, and one parent decides to move to Winnipeg? Clearly, the shared residential arrangements would have to be revisited because children can't fly between Ontario and Winnipeg uh, on a weekly basis and attend two different schools. But let's consider a more common scenario where one parent is the primary residential parent, meaning the children 
live with him or her most of the time and the other parent has access, for example, on alternate weekends and midweek for dinner. The residential parent decides to move to Kingston from Mississauga. When the parties were together, the family resided in Mississauga, and the residential parent continued to live there after the separation. But two years later, the residential parent decides to move to Kingston. The distance between Kingston and Mississauga is such that the move will affect the access and may even impact the frequency and quality of contact between the access parent and the kids. If the non-residential parent were to continue to have the alternating weekend access and midweek for dinner, that would involve a very long drive, two ways between Kingston and Mississauga, which makes no sense for the children. Many parenting plans address the mobility issue in advance. In other words, provide what is to happen if one parent plans to move. There may be notice provisions in the parenting plan. In other words, an obligation on the parent who proposes to move to advise the other parent of the plan, say, 60, 90, or 100 days in advance. There may be a provision which says neither party will move beyond a certain distance from the children's current residence without the other parent's consent or court order. Mobility issues are very complex issues, and you would be best served to get legal advice on this point. Here are some other clauses you might consider. Who will have care of the children's documents, like, for example, their immunization records, their SIN cards, or their birth certificates or passports? How will the passports be renewed? Turning your mind to travel arrangements ahead of time is also very important, and Many separated parents have already experienced this issue and realized that they need a travel consent letter to cross the border. All this can be set out in a parenting plan. There can be a clause which, for example, says what information the travel consent letter will contain, how much in advance of the trip it will be provided to the non-traveling parent for signature, who will be responsible for the cost of having the letter notarized, and so on. It's even possible to attach a draft travel consent letter to a parenting plan so that the parents are not reinventing the wheel when the issue comes up, but simply fill out the information they agree on in advance. Of course, the traveling parent should also be providing contact information to the non-traveling parent for the duration of the trip. And if it's longer than a couple of days, the non-traveling parent may want to have an opportunity to contact the children and check in with them while away. Sharing information about the children is another important topic you may want to address in your parenting plan. The law is clear that in Canada, each parent is entitled to receive any information about his or her child, information relating to health, education, and activities 
from doctors and teachers and service providers who are involved with the children. This right is the same for all parents, irrespective of whether they are sole or joint decision makers. Still, it may make sense to include reference to this issue in your parenting plan because such clauses are often helpful in signaling to these professionals and service providers that the parents have agreed ahead of time that information should be freely shared. Don't forget that your child's age is relevant. For example, if a teenager is receiving counseling, parents should not assume that they can simply contact the counselor and find out what is being discussed in the counseling sessions in every circumstance. But for younger children, this should be a non-issue. And a parenting plan might say, for example, whether each party is to receive their own school calendars or whether one will advise the other of all concerts and recitals in a communication book, for example. Speaking of communication, how will the parents exchange information about the children? Addressing this point may be particularly important where there is a history of conflict between the parents. When I first became a family law lawyer many, many moons ago, communication books were very common. A binder or notebook traveled with the children between their parents' homes, and at the end of their time, parents put a note in the communication book summarizing any relevant information like runny noses or assignments coming up. With the proliferation of electronic communication, notebooks have become far less common. But many parents send each other emails or texts or use Our Family Wizard, which is a computer-based program through which parents send each other messages and schedule activities using calendars. Family court judges in Ontario are very much in support of families using our family wizard. So if you're at all interested in the service, take a look at their website and I will include reference to it in the episode notes. The frequency of communication between parents may also be important to address. It can be downright disruptive to receive several messages from a parent over a course of an hour on issues which are not urgent, particularly if an immediate response is demanded. My parenting plans often include a communication protocol. In other words, a timetable based on which parents send each other messages when the issues are not ones requiring an immediate response on issues which are truly not objectively urgent. The reline of an email may be used to signal whether the communication is urgent. There are lots of other options. What happens if there is an emergency involving a child? Who is to make short-term decisions and how? Is the other parent to be notified, to which the obvious answer is yes? But how soon is the parent who had care of the child 
when the emergency took place, entitled to make decisions without the other parent being present. That's another topic you might consider addressing. Parenting is a dynamic experience, and parenting plans should be dynamic as well. By this, I mean that they should consider the possibility that changes can take place over time as children grow, as their needs change, and as the circumstances of the parents change as well. A parenting plan might contain review provisions. What do I mean here? Let's say that a parent very much wants to have the children live with him one half of the time, but when the parties first separate, the children are still very young and a week on, week off arrangement, for example, would not be appropriate. If the ultimate goal is to have the children live with both of their parents, there may be a timetable built into the parenting plan for a review of the residential arrangements after a certain period of time. So the parenting plan would say that parent A is the primary residential parent, parent B has access, but this arrangement will be reviewed on the third anniversary of the signing of the parenting plan. The clause might end there, or it may be more complex and actually set out a procedure for that review. For example, to include consultation with the children's pediatrician or a discussion with the teachers. There are various options here. There may also be unanticipated changes after the initial parenting plan is signed. Let's imagine one of the parents has to begin caring for an ill family member and the extent of that care impacts the parenting arrangements. A smart parenting plan should contain a clause which anticipates the possibility that unforeseen circumstances may arise and set out steps on how to handle them. We have come to the end of the episode. I do hope you found something I have said helpful to you helpful in navigating your way to a sane split. Thank you for listening. I hope you will tune in again. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach me through my website, separationinontario.com. Subscribing to the podcast through your favorite app will make future episodes available to you automatically. Signing off for now.